Blog Talk Radio. sermon is by John MacArthur, pastor, author, and Bible teacher with Grace to You. If you've never contacted Grace to You, we want to send you a free booklet by John called God's Sufficient Word. It will help you see that for every concern you have, every decision, every struggle, every sorrow you face, the Bible has the wisdom you need. Request your free booklet by writing to word at gty.org. That's word at gty.org. This offer is good in North America and Europe through December 2022. 
And now, unleashing God's truth one verse at a time. Here's grace to you, Bible teacher John MacArthur. We return this morning to our study of Ephesians. For those of you who are visiting with us, we have been moving at a rather slow pace through this wonderful letter of Ephesians written by the Apostle Paul to believers because it's so foundational and uh, every paragraph we come to lays down another very, very foundational truth about the Christian gospel and Christian living. The first three chapters of this short epistle dealt with the issue of salvation, the gospel. The last three chapters deal with the issue of sanctification, living as a Christian in the world. And that's where we are. And we have been directed, starting in chapter 4, verse 1, with the word, therefore, into the practical section. After the wonderful doxology that ends chapter 3, pay on a phrase, if you will, for the glory of the saving gospel of Christ, the theme of the opening three chapters. We then come down to earth in chapter 4, verse 1, where Paul says that you are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And that's a call to salvation. Having been called to this salvation, we are to walk in a manner that is worthy of that calling. In other words, sanctification follows salvation. And how are we to walk? Well, we've been learning that through chapter 4, 5, and 6. If you go down to verse 17, we are to no longer walk as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. They too, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. And he goes on in verse 22 to say, that was your former manner of life, but you laid aside that old self, which uh, is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. And you have been renewed in the spirit of your mind, verse 24, and put on the new self. So we are new creatures in Christ. And we no longer walk the way we used to walk. How do we walk? Chapter 5, verse 1, as imitators of God, as His beloved children. He is our Father. We are in His family. We show evidence of that by our life. In verse 2, he says, walk in love as Christ loved you and gave Himself up for you. In verse 8, he says, walk as children of light. What does that mean? Verse 9, goodness, righteousness, and truth. In verse 15, walk as wise. So walk is simply a picture of daily Christian living. And we have gone through all these aspects of it in the months past. And it's been an incredibly blessed time together. The key to it comes in chapter 5, verse 18. That is to be filled with the Spirit. In order to walk this way, You need the power of the Holy Spirit, and you need Him to activate the Word of God in your life. The filling of the Spirit and letting the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, as Paul's words in Colossians express it, are one and the same thing. You submit yourself to the Word of God, 
you are therefore submitting to the Spirit of God, who is the author of the Word. And when you're filled with the Spirit, you're filled with His Word. So we can live this Christian life, and it will be evident. The first evidence of it is in verse 19. If you're filled with the Spirit, if you're fulfilling the desires of the Lord, if you're walking in the Word, you will be marked by joyful praise, joyful worship, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, which is what we do when we gather together and what you do on your own all the time as you express the joy of your salvation. So the first is joyful worship. The second response or result of the filling of the Holy Spirit is constant thanksgiving, verse 20, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. So the, the first two verses responding to being filled with the Spirit have to do with our relationship to God. We praise Him with joyful worship. We thank Him in everything with constant thanksgiving to the Father through Christ. Then when you come to verse 21, we move from the Spirit-filled life as it relates to God to the Spirit-filled life as it relates to others. Verse 21, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. What marks all of our human relationships in the body of Christ is submission. Submission. We submit to each other. And that's laid out for us in verses 22 to 33 in marriage. The husband submits to the wife's needs. The wife submits to the husband's lead. And then last week in chapter 6, verses 1 to 4, the children submit to their parents, and the parents submit to their children by not provoking them, verse 4, to anger, but bringing them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Everything is, a, while there is an authority submission established there, the husband is the head of the wife, the parents are the head of the children, there is mutual submission as each of us does whatever we can do to provide whatever the other needs. We subject ourselves to the needs of all of those around us. To borrow the language from Philippians 2, we look not on our own things, but the things of others, which is what Christ did in His own self-emptying. So we have looked at the, the relationships that are most intimate, the marriage relationship and the family relationship. Now in verse 5, we come to the third category of close relationships where spirit-filled living, godly living, shows up. And let me read verses 5 to 9. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men-pleasers, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters, do the same things to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Now, this is a very practical, very direct portion of Scripture that gives God's divine design 
for our employment relationships, our work relationships. And just because you need to understand the context and the setting here, you have to understand that in the ancient times, most people who work were attached to a family. It was an agrarian culture. They, they had land. They farmed that land or they raised animals on the land or they had craftsman skills and it still was basically around the home where they applied their trade and earned their living. And so if they needed help, they would then have relationships, contracts with people who would come and work for them. And that's the setting that you have here. And I, the reason I want you to understand that is because you're not talking about people who go off to a factory in this setting. You're talking about people who are virtually living with the people who, um, who are their employers and their bosses and their leaders. And the people are also living with those who are their slaves. Now, I know when you see the word slaves, it can put you off a little bit, so I'll try to help define that as best I can. It should be very familiar to us in Scripture because if you notice down in verse 6, we are slaves of Christ. Now, Christ picked slavery as a picture of our relationship to Him. He is our kurios and we are doulos, slaves to Him as our master, which is to say that there is a form of slavery which is noble and exalted. In fact, it is such a wonderful relationship that it it can be used to describe the relationship that every Christian has with Christ Himself. What is so noble about slavery? Well, slavery in its purest form, and it is certainly regulated in the Old Testament in wonderful and protective ways, very different from the kind of slavery that you know about in more modern history. But slavery was simply a way that people who needed employment could contract with someone in a relationship that would allow them to work for those people who then took care of them. And there were some very strict rules about that in the Old Testament, very strict. Uh, you, you, you couldn't kidnap anybody. You couldn't buy people. There was no human trafficking. You couldn't buy and sell people as such. Uh, furthermore, they, they, they were slaves by their own will because they needed to be cared for Furthermore, you couldn't um, abuse them if you did anything to, for example, if struck a slave and harmed his eye or knocked a tooth out, he was to be set free. If you ever acted grievously and abusive against your slave, it could cost you your life. There was a death penalty attached to it. Furthermore, any family member who wanted to redeem a slave could do so by redemption. He could go to the one the slave was serving and say, I, I want my family member back. I think we can take care of this individual. We want him for us. They could be redeemed. And uh, even the contracts had to allow for the seventh year when all the slaves were set free if they chose that, and the Jubilee, the 50th year. So anytime you contracted with someone for that kind of uh, unique relationship, it was limited by the time. If you only had a few years before the seventh year, you, you would only be able to expect that slave's work for those few years he would have freedom to go. The Old Testament also laid out the fact that if in Exodus 21 a slave decided that he loved his master and wanted to stay for life, then the master would uh, take him by a piece of wood, by a piece of lumber, and hold out his ear, or he'd pierce your ear for an earring, and put a hole in it. And that was, that was the way he was saying, I want to be 
your slave for life. So slavery in the biblical sense was a protected thing. It did not allow, in the, in the Jewish context, it did not allow for any abuse of any kind at all. And it was the best of all situations in many cases because you were cared for, housed, fed, welcomed into the family, maybe even in sharing part of the riches of the family. It was a very important place to demonstrate your Christian life, though, in the pagan world. So by the time we get to the New Testament, it's pagan slavery that we're facing, and it's not the kind of slavery that the Old Testament regulated when Israel came back from Egypt and entered into Canaan and Leviticus 25 and, and parts of, of Exodus define what's permitted and what's not. This is a very different world. That was a very helpful way to employ people and take their needs into, I think, the deepest level of commitment because if someone was your slave, you, you really had to take care of them. You, you possessed them. They were totally dependent on you, which was the best of all things if you had a good master. And we know people like Abraham had many such servants or slaves and cared for them all. So it was really an employment relationship. The, the concept of the word has been so demeaned over centuries because of the abusive forms of slavery. But that's no different than abusive forms of marriage, which doesn't negate the goodness of marriage that God designed. So we have a work relationship is, is the next place where we have to demonstrate the transformation of our lives. Where we have to walk in the Spirit and show our joyful worship, our consistent thanks, and our willingness to submit to those around us. Now, this is a big relationship even for us today. We, we don't necessarily, some of you may, may work and live in the home of your employer, but it's a little more rare. In the Roman world, they say there are about 50 million people and probably as many as 10 million were slaves. So it was the dominant form of hired work. But even so, the, the next, next to family, you will spend most of your time in your life with the people you work with. You might spend more time with other people in the cycle of meeting people and coming and going, but you're stuck with the same people for years very often in your workplace. And uh, the average person who works full-time works 42 years, somewhere between 90,000 and 100,000 hours. So you have an awful lot of time and an awful lot of contact with people who need to see what Christianity looks like, right? And that's your task. That's your objective. You put Christ on display. And we'll see that here. And the key thing that I want you to understand is this. There's no such thing as a secular job for a Christian. You, you don't have a secular job. You have a sacred job. And your boss is not the guy that you think is your boss or the lady that you think is your boss. Your real boss is Christ. And that comes out in this text over and over again. In verse 5, as to Christ. In verse 6, slaves of Christ. In verse 7, as to the Lord. Verse 8, from the Lord. Verse 9, their master and yours is in heaven. So almost every verse identifies the fact that your real master is the Lord himself. And he's the one that's going to render the verdict on your work. 
And it's in that environment of your work that you need to live the Christian life filled with the Spirit, joyfully worshiping, constantly being thankful, and submitting yourself. This is healthy. You say, well, wait a minute, I thought work was cursed. Well, you're right, it's cursed. Genesis 3, God cursed Adam and said, you're going to have to work the ground. You're going to have to work diligently six days a week, and you're going to have to sweat and toil, and uh, there's going to be all kinds of uh, obstacles, thorns and thistles, and it's going to be a difficult task because you're dealing with a cursed world. And in the end, you'll, you'll go back to dust. But although the, the world is cursed and work shows the reality of that curse, the Bible is very adamant that we need to work. There is nothing worse than someone who doesn't work. That's really serious. You know, there used to be a saying, idle hands are the devil's plaything. And in a fallen world, you need something to occupy you. And work is what God has designed. There has even been, since the time of the Reformation, something called the Protestant work ethic, which developed in the Reformation because all of a sudden there was a completely new approach to work. Up until the Reformation, Roman Catholic people would, quote-unquote, work, do good things, do things well, to earn their salvation, thinking that that's how you earned your salvation. That was the Catholic work ethic. You have to do what you do so you can gain heaven. The Protestant ethic was this. You have been transformed. Salvation is free. By grace you have become a child of God. And now you work for the benefit of others. You work for the benefit of others. Not to earn your own salvation, not to find your way into heaven, but to demonstrate the power of the gospel to change you from a person who is self-serving to a person who is others-serving. That's the Protestant work ethic. And it is the Protestant work, work ethic, starting with the Reformation, that changed the world. And even to this day, the most uh, flourishing nations economically are those that experience the Protestant Reformation. So we are slaves of Christ, and that's a beautiful picture of a, what slavery in its noblest should be. Christ bought us, right? Bought us. With his own blood, loved us, bought us, took us in, and actually adopted us as sons and daughters, and promised us everything we would need, all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies in Christ are ours. He promised to be our Savior, our source, our protector, our security. He promised that one day he would gather us to himself in his kingdom in his house where he's preparing a room for us and reward us eternally with an everlasting reward that has been laid up for us in heaven. I can't think of a better, better relationship than being a slave of Christ. And he takes full responsibility for us. He is the perfect illustration of what a master should be and what every slave would want wasn't that way in the Roman world. So this is new. This, this, is, this is offensive to talk about Christians being slaves of Christ because slavery in the Roman world is an ugly reality. One historian says on the island of 
tell us in one day as many as 10,000 slaves were sold. There was human trafficking. There was kidnapping. There was defeating an enemy and then taking the enemy captive and hauling him off to your nation and selling him off as slaves. The Romans were bitterly cruel toward their slaves. Slaves had no rights, no right to court, no right to personal defense, and very often no right to kindness. And by the way, Exodus 21.16 does say that if you ever steal a man, any trafficking, you should be put to death. So no one was to be taken and kidnapped into slavery. No cruel slavery could be defended on Old Testament grounds at all. But by the time you get to Rome, uh, slavery has changed. In the book of Leviticus, you have chapter 25, which talks a lot about slavery and what is allowed. And uh, the thing that's repeated twice in, Exodus, in uh, Leviticus 25 is that you can't take dominion over a slave, that you have to treat him with kindness as if he or she were a member of the family. Um, in fact, in Deuteronomy 23, an interesting little word there about this. It says, don't return an escaped slave from a cruel master. Let him live with you. So, like any relationship, it can be abused. Like parents abuse kids and like husbands abuse wives or wives abuse husbands, slaves and masters could abuse each other. That's why it's so important that the Holy Spirit control that relationship. Good relationships would be illustrated in Luke 7. I'll show you a good relationship. And the most interesting one, I think, a Roman centurion. So he's, he's a significant person. He commands a hundred soldiers in the Roman legion. And he has a slave. And he just happens to really love this slave, which would be the best of that relationship in ancient times. And it says in Luke 7, verse 2, a centurion slave who was highly regarded by him was sick and about to die. When he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. When they came to Jesus, they earnestly implored him, saying, he's worthy for you to grant this to him. You need to heal this centurion slave. He's worthy, for he loves our nation, and it was he who built us our synagogue. He had been influenced by the Jewish relationship, the Old Testament perspective for the slave. This is someone for whom he had great affection, and he wanted him well. And these Jewish people who had influenced him so much that he was a donor to the synagogue in Capernaum, a Roman centurion. Verse 6, Jesus started on his way with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. This is a humble man. This is a centurion. This is a commander. This is the guy at the top of the pile. This is the drill sergeant over the hundred troops. This is someone who's a rough, tough guy has some kind of an ego, has the ability to lead in very, very dangerous endeavors. But he's very humble, 
And he doesn't want Jesus to trouble himself by coming all the way to the house. Verse 7, For this reason I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. He's not only humble, he believes. Now, Capernaum was a busy place. Jesus did lots of miracles there. And he had come to believe that he had that miracle power. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. I've seen it. I know how authority works and I've seen your authority over disease. I know authority when I see it. I'm a man placed under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go and he goes. And another, come and he comes. And to my slave, do this and he does it. So he had a relationship with a slave in which he said, do this and he does it, which is the right authority submission relationship. But he had such profound affection for the man. He was brokenhearted that he was dying. When Jesus heard this, he marveled at him and turned and said to the crowd that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. Wonderful. A, a Roman centurion with more faith than Jesus found in the people of Israel. Verse 10, when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. Uh, the Lord healed his slave, gave the man back his slave. That's a good relationship. That's a loving relationship. That's a relationship in which he says to the guy, go and he goes. And that's how it works. But he loved him as well. Now we're talking about human relationships, folks. You understand that, right? Not spiritual relationships. In Christ, Galatians 3.28, there's neither bond nor free, right? That's In the kingdom, those things don't even exist. It's neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, bond or free. So we're, we're simply talking about slave relationships. Another great illustration of a good one was the illustration of the book of Philemon. Philemon had a slave by the name of Onesimus. Onesimus ran away. That was a, that was a crime that would be punishable by one of two things. Put a letter on the head, sort of like Esther Prine, in the early American novel, where you mark somebody fugitivus, an escaped slave, which would then make him a criminal the rest of his life, unable to hide himself. So that was one possibility with a slave that ran away. The other possibility was execution. So Onesimus leaves Philemon, his master, and he takes off to get lost in the crowd at Rome and runs into Paul. And he comes to Christ. And Paul says, you have to go back. You have to go back. And he writes the letter of Philemon and tells Philemon, take him back. Take him back as a brother in Christ. You go back. You serve the one to whom you belong. And you are brothers in Christ, but you still have that relationship. Kind of like husband and wife. There's a leader and a follower. But in Christ, there's equality. The Old Testament condemns any kind of ill treatment of anyone in any relationship. It's certainly true in slavery. But it does understand that in the ancient world, it could be the best of all possibilities for people who needed to be cared for. The world was rough and tough and hard and dangerous. And protection and security and provision was a huge Necessity. 
So that's sort of the big picture. So we come into the book of Ephesians, and Paul is going to talk to the people in Ephesus who are part of the Roman system who are used to slaves. As I said, there were millions of them. And Paul is going to revolutionize their understanding. As I said, I gave you two examples already of uh, good masters. The centurion had come to believe something about Jesus Christ. He had come to believe enough that Jesus responded to his faith. And Philemon was a believer to start with. And so Paul wanted Onesimus to go back and restore that relationship with him. But in the other part of the world, slavery was brutal. So this is a hard word. Go to verse 5. The first part of this text is the submission of the slaves. Slaves, doulas, douloi, be obedient to those who are your masters. That's what slaves do. Or if you want to put it in the contemporary vernacular, if you work for somebody, do what they tell you. Life is pretty simple. I've said this for years to the students at the Master's University. They, they ask me, how, how can I be successful in the future? And my answer is, do what they tell you. Just do what they tell you. Do it well. Do it as unto the Lord. And you'll be amazed at how unique you will be. Just do what they tell you. That's what someone employed is responsible to do. But that was abused in, in the Roman days. There were all kinds of abuses. In fact, they're so common that there's some things that were written in that era that I'll just share with you to give you a bit of a perspective. Um, Varro, a Roman writer, divided agricultural tools into three groups. The mute tools were vehicles, the inarticulate tools were cattle, and the articulate tools were slaves. So you were, you were seen as just a beast who could talk. That was pretty much it. Cato gave advice to a man taking over a farm. Uh, this is in an ancient document. But Cato said this, Old slaves must be thrown out on the scrap heap to starve. When a slave is ill, it is sheer extravagance to issue him normal rations. The old and the sick slave is only a broken and inefficient tool. Get rid of him. Gaius, the Roman lawyer, said, The master possesses the power of life and death over the slave. Augustus, Caesar Augustus, supposedly crucified a slave because he killed his pet quail. Vidius Polio flung a slave still living to savage eels in his fish pond because he broke some dish. Juvenal talks of a master who delights in the sound of cruel flogging, thinking it's sweeter than song. Abusive slavery. That's why eventually in Rome there was a slave rebellion. A Roman writer summed it up when he said this, Whatever a master does to a slave undeservedly, in anger, willingly or unwillingly, in forgetfulness, after careful thought, knowingly or unknowingly, is judgment, justice, and law. What is Paul going to do? Does he urge rebellion? Does he say you all need to rebel? You need to pull off a revolution? No. That's disruptive of the social order. He says what you need to do is be obedient. 
to what they tell you. Great message here. Simple, profound. Slaves, do what they tell you. In 1 Peter chapter 2, you have an illustration of uh, this same thing in a, in a household slave. Verse 18, 1 Peter 2. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect. And I, he's talking here, and the word is household slaves, oikates. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. Oh, that's too bad that's here. <laughs> Why? For this finds grace, literally this finds grace, if for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. So you're not treated fair at work? You're going to get grace. You're going to get sufficient grace. What credit, verse 20 says, is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds grace with God. Then he goes on to say, you've been called to this purpose. You've been called to suffer unjustly at work. Christ suffered for you and left you an example of how to suffer. How should you suffer? He never committed a sin and never any deceit found in his mouth. And while he was being reviled, he didn't revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Commit yourself to God and accept the suffering. Don't be disruptive. Don't be a rebel. I mean, your, your job is a sacred calling where you are to put on display the power of the gospel in your life. And it starts with the right behavior. Behavior, be obedient to those who are your masters. That is the right behavior. Whether they're reasonable or unreasonable, fair or unfair. Look at the First Timothy 6. And we get the same instruction, verses 1 and 2. All who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. You are to, that's a blanket th statement. You are to honor your master. You are to regard your own master as worthy of all honor. Why? So that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. You can't, you can't be a rebellious, cantankerous, disgruntled employee and make somebody believe the gospel transforms your life. And oh, by the way, if you have a Christian boss, verse 2, those who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them because they're brethren. Don't, don't take advantage of that. But must serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. Teach and preach these principles. Tell everybody. You submit to your boss, even if he's unreasonable, 
you submit to your boss all the more if he's a believer and you're tempted to abuse that relationship or to take advantage of the fact that he's a believer and he's more kind to you. And so you give him less because you think he won't be harsh. Titus 1, 9. Holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that we will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers, deceivers, etc., etc. Then in chapter 2, I mean, we have the responsibility to hold the faithful word, to exhort with sound doctrine, but then to live it. Go to chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not stealing, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. You're, you're adorning the doctrine of God our Savior. You're adorning salvation. So the right act is obedience. The right perspective is, back to verse 5, according to the flesh. This is just for now. This is just temporal. In Colossians 3, it says, on earth. It's human, it's temporal, it's earthly. The employer has authority, and you are to submit. You submit. This is for here and now. And you do it with the right attitude. The attitude comes next. The action, the perspective, it's an earthly command, and the attitude with fear and trembling. In other words, severity. The seriousness. This is respect and reverence. You fear offending. You fear enough to tremble. Now, who are you fearing and trembling here? Are you afraid of your boss? Are you trembling at your boss? No. Your fear and trembling is related to Christ at the end of the verse. It's because you're a slave of Christ. It's because you're called to do the will of God. It's because your service is to the Lord. It's because your reward, verse 8, is from the Lord. It's because both your master and your master's master are God. So you're always bypassing the human authority. So you have the right action, obedience, you have the right perspective, it's earthly, you have the right attitude, fear and trembling, which means you deal with reverence. That is part of what it means to think of your job as a sacred trust. And there's a, there's a fourth thing to think about, and that is the integrity of it. In the sincerity of your heart. Honest, upright, undivided, conscientious, loyal commitment to the work that you've been called to do and placed into by Christ. And then the motive as to Christ, verse 5. This is the crucial point. Everything goes directly to Him. There's no such thing as a secular job. Your life as a believer is constantly an act of worship 
and it is to demonstrate the transformation of the gospel in every relationship. Consider that you're serving Christ. Now, Paul expands on that verse in the next verse. Verse 6, not by way of eye service. You need to have the right diligence so that you're not simply doing what you do when you're being watched as men pleasers. You're not a man pleaser. You're, you're not, your boss is not the one you are to please. That's explicit. That, that's, what, that's what people in the world do. They do enough to please the boss when they're watching. Well, I have good news for you. Your botch, boss is always watching. Your, your boss misses nothing. Nothing. Not a split second of your life. So there has to be deep integrity as you do what you do as to Christ. And you do it as slaves of Christ. And then the end of verse 6, doing the will of God from the heart. That's the same thing as sincerity of heart at the end of verse 5. Sincerity of heart. And then in verse 6, doing the will of God from the heart. The heart is the idea that this is deep in your convictions. Your obedience, your Christian walk in the workplace comes from the heart. Verse 7, he says, with good will render service as to the Lord and not to men, which is another way of saying what he said in verse 6. With good will, eager anticipation, anxious willingness, have an eagerness to work as to the Lord because He is the one that you serve, not Men, Every single piece of work you do, every hour of every day, every, do every job, every task, you do for the Lord. That's what it's saying. The money is never your motive. The joy in serving the Lord is always your motive. And if you follow that path, then you, you have the great incentive in verse 8 knowing that whatever good thing each one does, as known by the Lord, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. When it comes to eternal rewards, there are no ranks, okay? Not going to be any bosses. There aren't going to be any vice presidents, presidents. There are not going to be any managers. There are not going to be any people at the bottom of the totem pole. That's not an issue at all. When, when the Lord lays out the reward, when He gives back, it's not going to be based on the rank you had, the position you had. The great incentive He will reward you. He's the final paymaster. He's going to cut your eternal check. In Revelation 22, Jesus said, Behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give to every man according as his work shall be. And there's no strata in heaven. There's no levels. It's just the reward for what we did faithfully for Him. So you're working for the Lord. You have a sacred life. You have a sacred calling. And your work is sacred. 
Now, verse 9, we have a few minutes left to talk about the submission of the masters. And you say, well, they only got one verse. No, not really. Because it says this, and masters do the same thing to them. Now, there's real submission. What do you mean do the same thing? Work with your employees with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart, as if you were working for Christ. Not by way of eye service, not something superficial, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, render service to the slaves as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. He doesn't have to list it all again because it's the same list. The very same list. You do the will of God. You do it from the heart. You render service to the Lord. You demonstrate fear and trembling, sincerity of heart. You do it as unto Christ. And you do it in anticipation of His eternal reward. And oh, he adds one thing in verse 9. Give up threatening. Stop the intimidation. No place for threatening. Any kind of verbal abuse. Knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there's no partiality with him. So, what is basically demanded of the slave is demanded of the master. There's still an authority relationship there, submission relationship in the function. But behind the function, God is evaluating only how each one served him. And on that impartial basis, as far as any earthly stratification is concerned, God gives an eternal reward. I don't know if you think about this. You may have thought that, uh, you know, you're getting a reward for coming to church. Um, yeah, I think that's part of it. But your real reward is, is, is going to be based on your work. And not necessarily your work for the kingdom, although certainly that is you're laying up treasure in heaven. But you serve the Lord in your job. And how faithfully you did that and took the difficulties that came and didn't rebel, but committed yourself to a faithful creator and leave the final paycheck to him, that's going to determine your eternal reward. You, you, you don't want to think lowly of your job. You want to think so highly of your job that you understand it is a way in which God has designed for you to earn eternal rewards. How you do it. Both as a manager and an employee. Everything in life is sacred for those who belong to Christ. Let's pray. Lord, this is so practical and help us to be able to make application even starting tomorrow. Help us to understand that we're slaves of Christ. We do everything we do as to the Lord. We serve Him. He is our Master. And our job is simply an earthly temporal reference point where we can put on display our love for Christ. How we work 
demonstrates how much we love Christ. Help us to understand that. Discontent, laziness, disloyalty, stealing, being disgruntled, unthankful. His service rendered to the Lord and as such would be sin. We wouldn't consciously treat Christ that way. But we have been told that how we function in the relationships that are very intense and very often long-lasting in our work is service rendered to the Lord for His glory, for our eternal reward, and so that the gospel will be put on display by our contentment and our joy. Help us to live that way and thus adorn the doctrine of the gospel. In Christ's name, amen. You've been listening to John MacArthur, Bible teacher with grace to you. For free access to all of John's lessons and a listing of study Bibles and books available for sale, visit grace to us website at gty.org. John MacArthur and Grace to You reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available at gty.org, and it includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating this digital file. Get social with Truth Be Told Radio. Check us out on our Facebook like page at Truth Be Told Radio. You can find our website at truthbetoldradio.com. That is... T-R-U-T-H-B-E-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O dot C-O-M. Truthbetoldradio.com. Do you have any questions, suggestions, comments, or want to tell us anything? Send those emails to truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. Remember, by sending us your email, you give us permission to read it on the air. So write us at truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. If you like to read blogs, we've got you covered. Check out ours at truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. That's truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. Also, follow us on Twitter as Truth, the letter B, then Told Radio. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O. Once again, that is Truth, the letter B only, not B-E, Told Radio. This is due to the restraints for Twitter's username link. Finally, to learn the testimony of Melissa Canchoa, the hostess of Truth Be Told Radio, see smilesandstuff.com. That's S-M-I-L-E-S-A-N-D-S-T-U-F-F dot C-O-M. Smilesandstuff.com. So stay social with us, and thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio. God make all things. Why did God make all things? For His glory. 
how can you glorify God? By loving Him and doing what He commands. Where do you learn how to love and obey God? In the Bible. What's the Bible? God's Word. God's Word. God's Word. What a word means. This is Ken Ham inviting your family to visit our massive Noah's Ark in northern Kentucky. A bait and switch happens all the time in public school textbooks, museums and science reporting. Here's what I mean. Evolutionists will give an example of change, such as variety in the size of beaks and finches, and then say, see, we observe evolution happening in these finches. But this is a mistake in logical reasoning called the fallacy of equivocation. What they've done is to demonstrate change within an animal kind and then switch the meaning of change to evolution in the sense of common descent. Small changes within a kind, that's observational science. We see it happening all the time. But to call that evolution in the molecules to man sense, that's fallacy. Discover more about logic and how to spot bad arguments when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com and plan your visit to our ARC encounter when you go to AnswersRadio.com. Is there more than one God? No, there is only one God. And how many persons does this one God exist? Three persons. Who are the three persons? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Where is God? God is everywhere. Can you see God? No, I cannot see God, but He always sees me. Who were our first parents? Adam and Eve. What did Adam and Eve do? They sinned against God. What is sin? Sin is disobeying God. Why did God send Jesus into the world? To save his people from their sins. What did Jesus do to save his people from their sins? He died on the cross and he rose from the grave. From the grave. From the grave. What a word means. This is Ken Ham inviting your family to visit our massive Noah's Ark in northern Kentucky. A bait and switch happens all the time in public school textbooks, museums and science reporting. Here's what I mean. Evolutionists will give an example of change, such as variety in the size of beaks and finches, and then say, see, we observe evolution happening in these finches. But this is a mistake in logical reasoning called the fallacy of equivocation. What they've done is to demonstrate change within an animal kind and then switch the meaning of change to evolution in the sense of common descent. Small changes within a kind, that's observational science. We see it happening all the time. But to call that evolution in the molecules to man sense, that's fallacy. Discover more about logic and how to spot bad arguments when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com and plan your visit to our ARC encounter when you go to AnswersRadio.com. What did Jesus do after he rose from the grave? 
He ascended into heaven. Where is Jesus now? He is seated at his Father's right hand. And what's Jesus going to do at the end of the age? He's going to come back and judge the world. What must a person do to be saved? Believe in the gospel. What is the gospel? The good news of Jesus' death and resurrection. And how is a person saved? By God's grace alone. And what is grace? God's kindness to the undeserving. Just a straw man. This is Ken Ham, CEO of the Noah's Ark attraction, The Ark Encounter, south of Cincinnati. We're halfway through our series on logical fallacies. Today's is another common one, the straw man fallacy. Now, this is when someone misrepresents another person's position and then attacks that instead of dealing with the actual argument. Here's an example. Creationists don't believe animals change. Clearly, animals do change, so creationists are wrong. That's nothing but a straw man. Creationists know animals change, but we argue that change is limited by kind. One kind won't turn into another kind. In other words, there are limits to the amount of change, and this is what we observe. Straw man attacks are common, so watch out for them and don't make them yourself. Plan your visit to the Ark Encounter and Creation Museum when you go to AnswersRadio.com. Bring the whole family to Northern Kentucky. Visit us at AnswersRadio.com. Here we go, kids, gather round. A brand new sound to praise the one who has the crown. In today's lesson, we'll talk about the Holy Bible, the most important book we all need for survival. The Bible is God's message for this world. It's for every man and woman, every boy and girl. And that message is that if we turn to Christ and place our trust in Him, we'll have eternal life. Now when we're at church, yeah, it's fun, it's cool. When we hear a lot of stories in Sunday school, like Jacob and Noah, Moses and Daniel, David and Jonah, Joseph, and Samuel, but all the little stories tell one big story about the God who made all things for his glory. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero and his name is Jesus. Where should we begin? When God made the whole wide world just by speaking. By his great might, he said, let there be light. The light he called day and the dark he called night. He made the earth and the seas, the dirt and the seeds, the herds and the trees, the birds and the bees. But the big surprise God had up the sleeve. On day number six, created Adam and Eve. Made in the image of the beautiful most high. God told them, be fruitful and multiply. Everything's yours, but that tree do not try. Because in the day you eat it, you're surely going to die. I'm sure you know the rest. Yes, they failed the test. And ever since then, the world has been a big mess. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero, and his name is Jesus.
we read God's word today, the greatest saints had their flaws on full display. And it was written down for us in order that we may recognize that Christ is the only way. Adam ate forbidden fruit and lost his life. Abraham got scared and lied about his wife. Sarah laughed to herself when she heard God's promise. Rebecca encouraged her son to be dishonest. Aaron used crafts to make a golden calf. Moses got mad, struck the rock with a staff. David sinned greatly, even lost his baby. And Jacob, he was just all around shady. The point is not to make light of our flaws, but to show that every one of us needs the cross. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero and his name is Jesus. The Bible can't be true because the Bible isn't true. This is Ken Ham, author and speaker on Genesis and all of the Bible's reliability. Have you ever heard a claim like, the Bible can't be true because it's full of miracles and miracles violate the laws of nature? How would you respond? Well, that's actually a bad argument. It's a logical fallacy known as begging the question. In this example, the person has already assumed what they're attempting to prove. They've assumed violating the laws of nature is impossible, even for an all-powerful God. In other words, they've assumed what the Bible teaches about God isn't true in order to prove the Bible isn't true. They've begged the question. In responding, gently point out the faulty reasoning and then present the truth of God's Word. Find answers and faith-building resources for the whole family at AnswersRadio.com and subscribe to receive free daily email insights from Ken Ham at AnswersRadio.com. Bye. 
Press your mom and pop, so do the Bible bump, bop, bop, bop. Have a good Seth and I, a Haggai, Zachariah, and Malachi. Lead us through the old palace, move on to the new, and see what we can find. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, and Corinthians. One and two. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Thessalonians. One and two. 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. Hebrew, James, 1st and 2nd Peter, and John. One, two, three. And don't forget to This is Ken Ham, author of the practical book on godly parenting, Will They Stand? Today we're wrapping up our series on logical fallacies with the fallacy of bifurcation. Now, this is when someone claims there are only two mutually exclusive options when there's actually a third one. An example, either you believe in science or you have faith. Well, that's bifurcation. You see, there's a third option. We have faith in God and believe in the natural laws he set up to govern the universe. In fact, it's only because God exists that we have a basis for natural laws in the first place. Immaterial laws can't exist in a material universe. Also, order doesn't come from disorder. So if someone presents you with two options, stop and consider, is there a third? Listen to this program again or view a complete transcript at AnswersRadio.com. You'll be equipped and encouraged in your Christian faith when you go to AnswersRadio.com. How do you walk with someone you can't see? And how do you? 
And this to you, I really hope you hear my heart When thinking about describing you, I really don't know where to start Can't start at the beginning, cause you are before the beginning Way before the beginning, and this fallen world's distorted opinions It was just the holy trinity, ruling from infinity Glory blazed tremendously, loving one another endlessly Billions and billions of years ago, outside of what we know as time Nobody else was there to know, but Lord, here's the thing that blows my mind As long ago as that was Long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord. Oh Lord, Lord, Lord. As long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same. You have not changed. What can that mean? But my God is immutable. Immutable, you are beautiful. You never change. You remain the How you reign supreme by far Not just because of what you do But simply because of who you are There's none like you in existence You are God and you need no assistance Even though we show you resistance You sent Jesus to close the distance That existed between God and man According to your sovereign plan We changed many times in one lifespan I've changed even since this song began Lord, I'm so glad that you're not like us All that you do will certainly last You are the rock that we can trust Shows us back in eternity past As long ago as that was as long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord. Oh, Lord, Lord, Lord. As long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same. You have not changed. What can that mean? But my God is immutable. Immutable, you are beautiful. You never change, you remain the same. About my ups and downs, all of my inconsistencies, all of my idiosyncrasies, still you pursue relentlessly. At times I wonder how this can be. Surely it's because of the cross. When Jesus paid the full penalty and bore the burden of sin's great cost. I'm saved by grace and faith in God. I look to Christ and I trust He died. But even though I'm being sanctified, I can't be any more justified. His work is finished, that cannot change. And with this knowledge, I am free. Forever this grace, it will remain because of what happened on Calvary. As long ago as that was. Long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord. Oh Lord, Lord, Lord. As long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same. You have not changed. What can that mean? But my God is immutable. Immutable, you are beautiful. You never change. You remain the same. Immutable, beautiful, you never change, never change, forever you reign, you remain the same. 
beautiful Christmas season that people don't talk about anymore. They don't use the word Christmas because it's not politically correct. You go to department stores and they'll say Happy New Year and they'll say other things and it'll be red. They'll have it painted, but they don't say, well, guess what? We're saying Merry Christmas again. Ho, ho, and ho, Christian. You're about to be annoyed in three, two, one. Happy holidays. Hey, happy holidays, man. (laughs) Happy holidays. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. Told ya. Fewer things rankle us, quite like hearing a store clerk croak out a less than cheerful Happy holidays, and you're doubly rankled if you remember a time when everyone used to say... Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas! Merry, Merry Christmas. Why does Happy Holidays get in our rankled cross? That's right, that's two rankled. Because we know what it represents. It represents a ground shift in American cultural celebrations a waning influence of Christianity in our culture. It represents retail stores that are more than happy to take our shopping money but refuse to acknowledge why we're shopping. It's annoying. Want to hear the most annoying sound in the world? Having said all that, is it possible, just possible, that you and I should have a different approach and a different response to the now annual Christmas battle over Greetings. Here are five reasons why it is not reasonable to force non-believers to say, Merry Christmas. Number one, imagine you live in an Islamic nation and the government and the imams, they demand that you say, Merry Ramadan. You go to work and your boss says, say Merry Ramadan or you're fired if you obey You're sinning against your conscience and your God. You feel a bit agitated that you're being compelled to say something you don't believe in. And even if you don't obey, you get fired. It's a lose-lose. Neither option brings a smile to our faces. I wonder, hmm, is that how the pagans feel when we try to mandate speech? Number two, we're asking people to lie by saying something they don't actually believe in. Number three, it's a wee bit pharisaical to demand people engage traditions where there's no underlying belief. Don't we sound like the Pharisees Jesus wrangled with who would mandate that people engage in a religious expression, a religious activity for a religion they're not even a part of? Number four, we're forcing people to render a false blessing. When we say Merry Christmas, we're basically saying, may your celebration of the birth of the Savior be joyful. Think of it like this. If you said to someone, may you get rich, but you didn't really mean it. We really aren't speaking a blessing or even the truth. Neither is the pagan actually blessing us when they don't believe in what they're saying. Number five, cultural Christianity. Don't we rankle? I believe that's our third rankle. When we see somebody who professes to be a Christian but isn't, or a false sort of evangelicalism, whoop-de-doo centers, we don't dig cultural Christianity where people don't actually believe in Christ. 
in a small way, are we contributing to that by making our entire nation say something Christian that they don't believe in? Number six, we just got to remember, non-believers, they can't have a Merry Christmas. (laughs) They can have a happy holiday season, sleigh rides. Do we still do those? Hot cocoa, stockings by the fire. They might even enjoy some really special time with friends and family. But apart from having a relationship with the Father through the Son, empowered by the Spirit, there's no true joy or merriment available to them. Am I suggesting that we stop wishing people a Merry Christmas? No, but don't you think we ought to pick and choose our cultural hills carefully? And getting non-believers to engage in a tradition they have no true belief in, I'm not so sure it's a hill we should be willing to die on or, frankly, even fight over. Discuss. Um, Houston, I think we have a few problems here. Go ahead, Richard One. Besides the fact I'm wearing a cardboard helmet, Houston, you have got one of the biggest false features in the universe. How rich is he, Wretched One? I can see his house from here. two things I've learned about us Christians. We love your end giving and we like a deal. Hey, let's put the two together. Right now we have a matching gift. Every dollar you give, it is doubled. That means your year end giving is a good deal. Find out more about that at wretched.org W-R-E-T-C-H-E dot ORG, you can, they have a radio show, and they have a TV show, radio show is about an hour, and a TV show is about half an hour, so check that out, they have a good show, and thanks for listening to me, Melissa Cantrola here on Truth Be Told Radio, and all I'm going to do now is, this is from the WWTT channel, also known as When We Understand the Text. And this is the top 10 Christmas WWTT videos. Thank you for watching When We Understand the Text. The following are some of our Christmas videos, taking a look back at the Christmas story, and no, not that Christmas story, there we go, and understanding what the Bible has to say. Be sure to check out the book, 25 Christmas Myths and What the Bible Says. Available in paperback or for your e-reader. Get your copy by going to www.utt.com. Here are 10 of our most popular videos. Number 10! Luke 2.7 says that Mary gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. This one verse is why we think of Mary and Joseph arriving in Bethlehem at the last minute, being turned away by an innkeeper, and then giving birth to the Savior of the world in a barn. But none of that is accurate. Due to the census decree, Mary and Joseph journeyed to Bethlehem, and verse 6 says, while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. So they'd been there for a while. It wasn't like she arrived in labor pains. Joseph didn't drag his wife from Nazareth nine months pregnant. Because they went back to the place of their lineage, they would have been staying with family. 
We get the idea that because the inn was full and Mary laid Jesus in a manger, he must have been born in a stable, but scripture doesn't say that. The Greek word for inn is kataluma, which also means guest room. The same word comes up in Luke 22:11 to describe the upper room where Jesus and his disciples had their last supper. A typical dwelling had two levels. The upper room was for dining and sleeping, the lower level for work and fellowship. At night, the animals would be brought inside to ensure they wouldn't run away or be stolen, and that's where the manger would have been. Mary may have preferred to have her baby downstairs because the guest room was full of people who were there to register for the census. But Jesus was born in a home, not in a barn. Now, if that ruins your perspective of Christ's lowly beginnings, it shouldn't. Instead of being born in the palace, which would have been visible from Bethlehem, the king of kings was born in a peasant's home, in the part where the animals sleep. Though he was God, he made himself nothing, so that through him we might have everything when we understand the text. Luke chapter 2 begins, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. Now critics love this verse because, as everyone with Google who can look up someone else who did all the research for their skepticism knows, Quirinius was not governor of Syria until 6 AD. Luke 1.5 says this was in the days of Herod, who died in 4 B.C., the two weren't even ruling at the same time. Luke got his dates wrong. That means the Bible is flawed, none of this happened, now stop celebrating Christmas and have a happy winter solstice. Oh, please. The response to this is very simple. Look at it again. In those days is a broad period of time. This is not saying Jesus was born at the time Quirinius was governor, only that he was born after the decree but before the completion of the census. In Acts 5, Luke said that particular census faced a lot of resistance, so it took some time to complete. Luke 3.1 says, In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, etc. Luke is way more specific with his dating there than in chapter 2. Also consider this. We get the dates of Herod's reign from the historian Josephus, who got many of his dates wrong. Why would you assume Josephus, who was not alive during the time of Christ, is more trustworthy than Luke, who is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Luke set out to write an orderly account, and that's what we have. God's Word is always reliable when we understand the text. And there were, out in the field, shepherds, keeping watch over their flock by night, when suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared before them, and they were greatly afraid. But the angel said to them, Fear not, for I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Seven hundred years earlier, the prophet Isaiah said, The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So the sign announced by the angel was that the prophecy had been fulfilled. Christ the Savior is born. But this was a sign to the shepherds in another way. See, shepherds practically lived with the sheep and goats they tended. They were considered unclean by Jewish standards. But the angel said the Christ child could be found in a manger. This meant he slept where the animals sleep. They could go right to the place and see the Messiah for themselves. The shepherds weren't scholars. They wouldn't be invited to the palace. They couldn't even enter the temple without a bath. But these lowly shepherds were the first to hear the good news that a king was born for all people. When they heard the gospel, they came to Jesus. Then they went out and told others what had been told to them, and we should do the same. 
Tell everyone the good news that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners when we understand the text. Andy Stanley claimed in a Christmas message that the virgin birth of Jesus really isn't all that important. If somebody can predict their own death and then their own resurrection, I'm not all that concerned about how they got into the world because the whole resurrection thing is so amazing. And in fact, you should know this, that Christianity doesn't hinge on the truth or even the stories around the birth of Jesus. It really hinges on the resurrection of Jesus. Okay, so the claim is that Christianity does not hinge on the truth of the birth of Jesus even though it's literally the first event we read about in the New Testament? Matthew 1, to 23 says, Now all this took place in order that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Just how important is the virgin birth? Well, if Jesus was not conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, that means he was conceived by the seed of man. The Bible says everyone born of Adam is born under the curse of Adam, inheriting his sin nature. As in Adam, all die. We would not be able to call Christ sinless if he were in Adam. But because he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, Jesus is perfect. When the angel said he will save his people from their sins, we know that's true because he was virgin born. He is God incarnate, the pure and spotless lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Without the virgin birth, Christ's death on the cross is meaningless and the resurrection wouldn't happen, and you would still be dead in your sins. The virgin birth is as important as his death and resurrection when we understand the text. Number six. In Matthew 27, Jesus was brought before Pilate who asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? At the start of Matthew's gospel, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Nativity scenes depict the Magi as three wise men, but there were many more traveling in a large caravan. The Bible says that all of Jerusalem was troubled by them, attracting enough attention to earn an audience before King Herod. Herod's own wise men said the prophets pointed to Bethlehem. So Herod sent the Magi on their way and to report back and tell him where to find the child. The Magi came from the area of Persia and Babylon. 600 years earlier, the Israelites were exiled into Babylonian captivity, and the Babylonians cataloged the writings of many Hebrew prophets who wrote about a star and the coming of a great king. The Magi knew who the star was leading them to because they read the scriptures. When they found him, they worshipped him and presented gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The Magi were warned in a dream not to return to Herod, who then ordered that all the boys in Bethlehem under the age of two be killed. More than 30 years later, when Pilate asked, Are you the king of the Jews? In the context of Matthew's gospel, he was saying, So you're the one who has stirred up all this commotion, starting with those Magi all the way up until now. Even to this day, the world stirs at the mention of the Messiah. Jesus Christ, when we understand the text. In Matthew 2, we read about wise men known as Magi following a star from Persia to Judea in search of the Christ child. The Magi were kingmakers who studied many ancient writings. 600 years earlier, the Jews had been exiled into Babylon and then Persia. So these Magi had the Hebrew prophecies foretelling the birth of the king. Moses said, a star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. And Daniel, a prophet revered by the Persians, wrote about when this would happen. The Magi came to Jerusalem and said, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. 
Since the prophecies were Hebrew, they assumed any Jew would know where to go. But Israel was so far from God, King Herod had to consult his own wise men to know what the Magi were talking about. The Magi followed the star until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And they found Jesus in Bethlehem, just as the scripture said. The Magi worshipped him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Much speculation has been made about the Star of Bethlehem searching history for some kind of astral phenomena. The most popular theory is that the star was a conjunction of Jupiter and Venus in August of 3 BC and again in June a year later. But that's not a very bright idea. According to Matthew, the star was always ahead of them and it moved, stopping over the house where Jesus was. Clearly there's no natural explanation. The Magi were led by something supernatural. And so are we to worship Christ the Lord when we understand the text. In Matthew 2.13, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the baby Jesus and his mother Mary and flee to Egypt. Remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph took his family to Egypt and remained there until Herod died. Now, some have claimed this means Jesus was a refugee. Usually this is to score political points or make some kind of argument about immigration. Generally speaking, a refugee is someone who's forced to flee their own country because of violence or a natural disaster. Given that Joseph with his family were fleeing the wrath of Herod, maybe they could be considered refugees. But recognize the family never left the Roman Empire. They left Bethlehem and fled to Egypt to the Jewish settlement at Alexandria. This means they were staying with their own people in a thriving community and likely used the gifts the Magi gave Jesus to pay for their stay. When Herod died a short time later, they returned to Joseph's hometown of Nazareth. The politicians who say Jesus was a refugee are often quite liberal. They advocate for the murder of the unborn and the redefinition of marriage. This means they're not at the court of King Jesus, but with the court of King Herod, who killed children and hated God's definition of marriage. They'd have done Herod a favor and killed Jesus before he was born. Jesus did not come to us as a refugee. He was born King of Kings, before whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, when we understand the text. Why do we celebrate Jesus' birth on December 25th? You've probably been told that Christmas was formerly the pagan feast of Saturnalia, but that feast has never been on December 25th. You may also have been told that Emperor Aurelian made December 25th the birth date of Sol Invictus, the god of the unconquerable sun. Years later, Emperor Constantine changed December 25th to the birthday of Jesus, but there's no proof that story is true. Constantine often gets far too much credit for a lot of Christian traditions. But has anyone ever questioned why Aurelian chose December 25th as the birth date of the sun in the first place? The winter solstice was on December 21st, the day the sun died, according to the pagans. Aurelian thought of the sun being dead for three days, the 22nd, 23rd, and 24th. And then it came back to life on the 25th. Now, where did he get that idea from? About 40 years before Aurelian's Sunday, Hippolytus of Rome wrote in a commentary on Daniel that he believed Jesus was born on December 25th. The Christian tradition that December 25th is the birthday of Jesus precedes any pagan tradition that December 25th was the birthday of a false god. It's more likely that Aurelian ripped off Christianity rather than the other way around. We don't know for sure on what day Jesus was born, but his birth, his life, his death on the cross, and his resurrection from the grave on the third day are historical facts. Whoever believes in him will be born again when we understand the text. <laughs> <laughs>
Did you know Christmas trees are forbidden in the Bible? Jeremiah 10, 3-4 says, For the customs of the people are vanity. A tree is cut down and worked by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. What could that be but a Christmas tree? Well, verse 5 says it's describing an idol. And Christmas trees symbolize that we don't worship idols. The story goes that in the 8th century, a man named Boniface went throughout Germania sharing the gospel, a very dangerous mission. He came upon a group of heathens who sacrificed babies to Thor under the Thunder Oak. Grieved by such barbarism, Boniface chopped down the tree and put an end to human sacrifice. The people were amazed Thor did not strike him down. Upon the stump, Boniface declared that Jesus Christ is God, and their pagan gods did not exist. He pointed to a small fir tree that pointed up to heaven, its leaves evergreen like the everlasting life we have in Christ. No longer worship the false gods in the wild wood, he said, but worship the true God at home with family. That was the meaning of the first Christmas tree. So again, a Christmas tree is not pagan. It's a reminder that we used to be pagan. Besides, there's no difference between having a Christmas tree and any other kind of plant. Whether you have a Christmas tree or not, let your testimony be that of 1 Thessalonians 1, 9-10. How you turn to God from idols to serve the living and the true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come, when we understand the text. Is Christmas a pagan holiday? No, it's a Christian holiday, a celebration of the birth of Christ. If that wasn't what Christmas was about, our secular culture wouldn't be so afraid of the name. But didn't Christmas start out as a pagan holiday? Probably not. There have been many pagan festivals around the winter solstice, including the Feast of Saturnalia. In 274, Emperor Aurelian chose December 25th as the birth date of Sol Invictus, the Roman sun god. Prior to that, Hippolytus of Rome tried to calculate the birth of Christ and came up with December 25th. The winter solstice was once a celebration of darkness on the darkest day of the year. It has since become a celebration of light when Jesus came into the world. But aren't all these Christmas traditions a rip-off of former pagan customs? Some of them aren't. Christmas carols are rich with biblical truth and have impacted the world over. Giving presents comes from the Magi bringing gifts to the Savior, and also the gift of the Savior himself to mankind. The Christmas tree has roots in paganism, no pun intended, but so what? Redefining pagan symbols is in the Bible. In ancient Rome, Caesar rode on a white horse. In Revelation 19, Jesus returns on a white horse because he's greater than Caesar. So at Christmas, some formerly pagan symbols have been Christianized to celebrate Jesus is greater than darkness. The Bible says nothing about Christmas, but it does say not to argue about days. Don't look down on the person who celebrates or the person who doesn't. Let us agree that the advent of our Lord is worth celebrating every day, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, when we understand the text. Pick up the book, 25 Christmas Myths and What the Bible Says, available in paperback or for your Kindle.
earth, he did it to show off his glory and worth. In Genesis 1, what we see in each verse is God made a world that is truly diverse. From icebergs to insects, tornadoes to trees, from lions to lizards, flamingos to fleas. Each in their own way, they God they are praising. The difference is cry out, God is amazing. But the crown jewel of the work of his hands are made in his image, both woman and man. We're not accidents, we are part of his plan. Yup, God made me and you. Let's go. is different, unique in their frame. God made them all, each kind and each sport. He made some people tall and some people short. Dark skin, light skin, and all in between. In each color and shade, his beauty is seen. The Lord knows the number of hairs on your head. Whether brown or black, whether blonde, gray or red. What some call ethnicity and others call race. We should celebrate as the gift of God's grace. You're wonderfully made from your feet to your face. Yup, God made me and you. Let's go. who trust in the Lord will be saved in the book of Revelation. Chapter number seven, the church from all times is gathered in heaven. Each tribe and people, language and nation, all thanking God for the gift of salvation together forever with saints of all kinds. Through each the glory of the Lord's going to shine. This is exactly what God has designed when God made me and you. Let's go. Shelter in the time of storm. 
That's all we got for Truth Be Told Radio. And join us next time, next Sunday, 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. And until then, bye for now. Here's Yancy Friends and the VRBLE. The B-